1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. If you've been with us, we've been in a series of messages out of 1 Timothy. And we've had three messages already regarding order in the church. And uh, this will sort of conclude that sub-series of messages in our uh, entire uh, study here in 1 Timothy. As you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I read of the amusing story this past week of a pastor who was new to his church and it was his first Sunday and he decided to kick off his first Sunday by visiting in the primary school class. And he was very pleased to note they were teaching the Bible. Uh, they were teaching uh, about Joshua. And so he confidently asked the children, he said, who was it who tore down the walls of Jericho? And immediately little Johnny, who was in the class, said, I swear, Pastor, I didn't do it. <laughs> sort of somewhat disturbed, he said, now come on, class, who tore down the walls of Jericho? At that point, the teacher interrupted and said, now, Pastor, I've known little Johnny, and I've known his family for a lot of years, and if he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. Well, you know what happened next. The pastor decided to go to the Sunday school director. He gave the answer young Johnny gave and the Sunday school teacher, and he says, what are we going to do? And the Sunday school director said, well, we have had some issues with little Johnny. I'm going to have a talk with him this week, and we'll see where that leads. Well, the preacher preached, and right after the service, you know where he went next, to the chairman of deacons, and he said, I have to meet with the deacons. We've got a major issue uh, that we've got to work out in this Sunday school class. And so the next week they had the meeting, and the pastor went with all guns a-blazing. He said, we've got this issue. He shared what each person's response was. And after he passionately expressed everything he did, one of the more older uh, seasoned deacons said, well, the way I see it, we can't figure out who did it, but we've got enough money in the general fund to pay for it. Let's fix the wall and consider it done. <laughs> Needless to say, they probably didn't follow the qualifications we've been looking at church leadership in the last few weeks. We've looked at the responsibility of the overseer and the deacon the last couple of weeks, and we're going to look today beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, I write these things to you hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and most certainly the mystery of godliness rather, is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Let us pray. Father, as we look at your word today and as we conclude this section of our study in First Timothy on church order, 
I pray, Lord, that you would bring to life the words in these verses that we read, that we would understand more about your intent for your church. And Father, I lift this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You know, as we've been looking at the subject of order in the church, we've looked at order in worship first and how God is a God of order. We've looked at order in governance. It sort of follows that we would ask this question, why is God so concerned with church order? Why is it so important? I believe today uh, we can clearly see three reasons why church order is important. You remember three weeks ago, uh, God wanted it to be known that it was important that things be done in an orderly manner and, and how God had proper responsibilities for various groups in the church. Two weeks ago, we looked at the uh, overseer or the pastor of the church and the qualifications, one of which, of course, being uh, doctrinal soundness, apprehending, understanding the truths, being able to articulate it. Last week, among the uh, responsibilities of the deacons, of course, uh, also had to do uh, with understanding proper doctrine. So it follows today as we sort of conclude this series of messages on order in the church, why is it so important? And I see the first reason in our text today is that God considers the church very precious. The church is God's own possession. In, in many ways, we've lost the sanctity of many things as we see in our, our world today, but one area is how sacred the church is. And I'm not talking about the institution as separate from God, but I'm talking about the body of Christ the bride of Christ, believers, not just a structure, but those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what people may say about the church, the church is very precious to the Lord. As we look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, really beginning in verse 14, Paul gives a reason that he is writing the letter, and he makes it very clear. He says in verse 14, I was really hoping to come to see you soon, and his intent was so that he could sit down face to face and communicate these things to Timothy. But in verse 15, we see that he realized that Paul himself may well be delayed in coming. And so he wrote so that we see people would know how to conduct themselves in what? In orderly manner. And the idea we have is this, as Timothy began to address these issues that we've seen in the previous verses that we've looked at in the last three weeks, people would say to Timothy, who are you to be telling us what to do? And you know exactly what he would do. He said, let me find this document here. This is what Paul says. And so it gave him the authority. But again, why did Paul send this letter? Not just to reinforce what Timothy was teaching about order in the church, but also he was expressing why the matter is so important to Jesus. And the first is this, the church matters to God. It's his possession. It's the Lord's church. It's not the deacon's church, the overseer's, the pastor's church. It's not the member's church. It's the Lord's church. And he has given uh, responsibilities to various leaders, and that responsibility is a sacred trust. Why? Because the church is God's possession, not just any possession. In the year 2000. 19, Karen and I visited Asheville, North Carolina, and, and uh, as you know, we 
visited the Biltmore because it's right there near Asheville. But one afternoon, we decided to visit uh, the downtown area of Asheville. I would love to go there again. Uh, lots of shops and nice eating places. And we just took one afternoon and did that. And, and as we were visiting, sort of the close of the day, we decided we were going to eat in the downtown area. And I'm always an early bird. I've got to be there 20 minutes early. And so we arrived outside the restaurant, but it wasn't opening until like 5 or 5.30. And so we sat on a bench outside of the restaurant waiting for it to open. When the restaurant opened, Karen and I left the bench to go into the restaurant, but we also left a T-shirt that we had just purchased for her a few minutes earlier. And I'll be honest, it bothered us, but it bothered us for about 15 or 20 minutes. It's not something we dwell on very often. And why is that? Because it was a relatively inexpensive T-shirt, and we had only had it in our possession for a brief time. And so we were able to get over it. In contrast, the church is greatly valued by God. God has a vested interest in his church. He, he paid for the church with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. The church is described as the bride of Christ, his very body. And, and I want you to notice here also how he describes the church to Timothy and also to the church at Ephesus. He calls it God's household. Now, household gives the idea of family. In other words, the church is God's family. The church is made up of his people. It is a treasure to the heart of God. But I want you to notice also it is God's possession. Notice what it says right after mentioning God's household in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. There's a genitive of possession there, which basically means that the terminology means that the church is owned by God. It's his very possession. And so as we look at this, we understand why the church is so important. It's not a trivial thing to God. God himself purchased it. God himself invested in it. God himself created and organized the church, and it's very important to him. So it makes sense, as we'll see in chapter 4, when Paul begins to address the issue of false teaching, that he precedes that instruction by speaking about order in the church because an ordered church, a rightly ordered church, would serve to be a garrison against false teachings that would threaten the church. But I want you to see a second reason the church is so precious to God. Not only is it his bride, the very body of Christ, God's own possession, God's household, but the church has been given a sacred trust. We have been given a sacred trust. Just this past week, uh, Karen and I ordered four pillowcases online. And as I was going through the ordering process, you, if you've ordered online, and I guess everybody does now, you get to the point when you think everything's finished, and then they say, oh, by the way, shipping. And so we had to pay for shipping. And you know what I did? I picked the cheapest way to ship. Uh, I didn't get the most expensive way. Now, why was that? Because we really didn't urgently need those sheets right now, and really they weren't uh, that valued. And so as you think about that, 
the decision I made about how it would be delivered was based on the value that I gave to the, that which was being sent. Now imagine, though, if precious china were being sent from me or to me. I don't think I would take the cheapest measure. I think I would use the most secure, the maybe the most expensive, because what was being sent is so precious in value. As we think about the church, the most precious thing, the gospel of salvation, has been given as a sacred trust to the church. In other words, we are the instrument through which the gospel is taken to the nations. Now, God can use other means. I'm not saying that. And maybe in your life, God communicated the gospel in another means. But the primary way God reaches the lost is through the church. Think about that for a moment. You've been given a sacred responsibility, a sacred trust of the gospel. Notice how Paul describes the church further in verse 15 at the end of the verse he says it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth that truth is considered to be the entirety of the word of god so the church is to be the pillar the foundation of it um, and we're going to look more at the definition of that um, and so as we look at that though i want to look at these two words the word pillar pillar translates the greek word stulos and it is that which is strong and secure but is built upon a solid foundation. It's to be weight-bearing. It's to be of substance. Really, uh, the word foundation, I think, would be more accurately translated. It's the Greek word hedrioma. It would more accurately be a buttress. Now, think about uh, for a moment uh, back in the days when uh, groups would lay siege or nations would lay siege to another nation and there would be walls. What would they bring in? toward the end, battering rams to try to hit it from the side and knock it down. A buttress would be the exact opposite of uh, a battering ram. A buttress would provide a lateral integrity. It would be uh, sometimes built from the ground and seek to secure that wall uh, from being knocked down. And so we see that the church is described as a pillar built upon the foundation of God himself as a bulwark able to stand against false teaching. That is how God describes the church. And not only is the church valuable to God, but the church has been given a sacred responsibility to, to resist, to stand against the influences that would try to do what? To attack the church. It's to reinforce uh, the truth. We carry a sacred message. What is that message? We see it in verse 16. The mystery of godliness. Now, the mystery is a profound or mysterious word in and of itself because when the mystery is used in speaking of the gospel, which it's speaking of here, it doesn't remain a mystery to those whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. It's that which it has been closed to the eyes of the unbeliever but open to the eyes of those who believe. It's a mystery solved. Nonetheless, a mystery. It's a mystery that God loved us enough that he left his abode in heaven and came to this earth and died for us. Notice what it says. He was manifested in the flesh, God incarnate, vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, he was resurrected from the dead. 
seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. We see in all of this the fact that Christ came in the flesh, that he was resurrected, and that he's the glorified Savior of the world. That's the message that we have. It's a message that will be attacked, but it is the truth. And the church is to be a pillar, a bulwark, standing firmly on that truth. But then we see a third reason. A third reason why it's so important that the church be rightly ordered. Not only because it's God's possession and there needs to be order, not chaos in the church. Not only because we carry a sacred message that needs to be stood upon, that needs to be defended. But there are those who would desire to thwart the trust given to the church and who would desire to corrupt God's message. That's where Paul moves in chapter 4. He says the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, what are the later times there? Well, most people understand that to be the times between Jesus' first coming and second coming, the time really after his resurrection leading up to his second coming. So in that sense, we're living in the later times. Notice what it says. Some will depart from the faith, apostate, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teaching of the demons. The source of that uh, influence are the demons. If that's the root, the source of this work. You say, well, how could this happen? Because there would be people who would be deceiving. There would be the hypocritical. There would be the liars who carry a false message. But notice what it says at the end of verse 2 about these people perpetrating this message. It says their consciences are seared, cauterized. They have no feeling. They themselves are deceived. You say, well, that person sounds so convincing who's sharing that doctrine. Well, that person has probably convinced himself or herself because that one's conscience has been seared. We're never to measure uh, the message based on how sincere we may feel someone is. We're to measure it what? On the pillar of truth. We're to measure it on the right teaching of God's word. So these individuals, they're deadened to the truth, self-deceived instruments to deceive others. And guess what? They were effective in some ways. The strong and ordered church would serve as a protection against such teaching. And false teachings abound today, don't they? New ageism, all types of self-helps, all types of secular humanistic teachings, wrong teachings about Jesus, wrong teachings about creation, teachings that emphasize just live however you want and then ask God to forgive you. All of these things are false teachings. But specifically here, Paul was speaking about one type of false teaching that was a great threat to the church. That was legalism. Legalism, spiritually speaking, depends on outward observance of external rules rather than faith in Christ. Miller de Erickson describes legalism as a merely formal sense of keeping the law, regarding obedience to the law as meritorious. It is a religion by rules, and its intent is to impress others in self of one's righteousness. The Pharisee of, of Jesus' day were guilty 
of legalism. Paul warns in Galatians 2.21 of those who seek to gain right standing by the law that that's not the way it's through faith in Christ. Listen, the only way a person will be saved is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only outward change that carries any merit at all in God's eye is if it is the natural outflow of the change of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. But legalism can creep its way into the church. It can creep its way into this church. What's wrong with it? It distorts the gospel. It tries to say that we need to add something through outward observance to what Christ has done. It, it nullifies salvation and faith. What we need to preach is a transformation inward by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and see the outward flow of a changed life. The famous preacher and theologian D.G. Barnhouse relayed the true story of a time that legalism infiltrated a church he pastored. The year was 1928, and certain older women in the church were complaining that the younger women were not wearing their stockings in public. Barnhouse told the older women, he said, I've studied the word for a number of years. As far as I can know, the Virgin Mary didn't own a pair of stockings, and they couldn't refute that. And then he said, and regarding the history of the wearing of stockings, I've also studied that, and the wearing of stockings began in the 15th century by prostitutes in Italy, and then it began to be normalized, and they didn't have much to say after that. I'm not saying don't seek to live right, but don't seek to live right to try to get favor with God. Come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me and allow God's spirit to do the working of transforming your life. Legalism is dangerous. It leads to self-righteousness, a judgmental attitude. It leads to great harm in the church. And the church needs right doctrine, strong, orderly leadership and involvement in the church to combat its threat. Well, what, what specifically were, and we're almost finished today, what were the two specific issues they forbid marriage and demand abst abstinence from certain foods. They took, in regard to the food, the ceremonial law from the Old Testament and made it as a standard for one's right standing with God. The only problem was Jesus himself declared all foods clean. And Paul himself taught under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the same truth. So you say, well, what about the ceremonial law? There were so many laws in the Old Testament, not moral laws like thou shalt not kill, but laws that had to do with cleanliness and certain foods to eat. You say, do we just discard those? No, we understand the intent. When God gave the ceremonial law to the Jewish people, the intent was to teach him, teach them rather, that he was holy. And so he gave certain ceremonial laws that are not eternal laws, but served a purpose to point to the holiness of God. Once people grasped the holiness of God, there was no need for it. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you had a two-year-old child. What would you warn that child about the street out here? The street is dangerous. Do not cross the street unless you're holding an adult's hand. Now, what, why do you do that? To teach that child about the danger of the street. You do that. 
Now, it would be really strange if after church you said, Pastor Rick, let me walk you across here, and you waited and walked me as you would a little child. Why, why would you not walk me across the street? Because I've grasped that truth. It, it was a, a rule, and once I grasped that truth, it was not needed. The ceremonial law served that purpose. That's why Jesus declared all foods clean. He, he himself was the holiness of God. To see him was to see holiness. They didn't need ceremonial rules to understand that. Now understand their moral laws, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not adul commit adultery. They are eternal. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. All of those things, they, are, they were wrong in all points of history and always will be wrong. But there were individuals taking the ceremonial law too far. They were saying, don't marry. Now, there were times when Paul said it would be beneficial not to marry. Also, there were times when Paul said it would be good to marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust toward one another. In the context of marriage, to unite is a good thing. But basically, what Paul is saying is be careful of these things that may seem so righteous, but the intent is not to point people to Christ. Now, as we look at verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, does that mean I go out and buy a fifth of liquor and just down that thing in an afternoon and get as drunk as I can and say, thank you, Lord? It does not. It does not. Because we need to understand, if I receive something with thanksgiving, who am I focused on? The one who gives it. So I wouldn't abuse anything if it comes from God. A food that may be considered unclean, if I say, God, you gave it to me, I appreciate it, I'm not going to abuse it, I'm not going to misuse it, then that's the attitude that it talks about there. And so Paul, in doing that, expresses how the church was to respond in those things. I like how it closes in verse 5, since it's sanctified by the word of God. And by prayer, just real simple aside, do you pray before your meals? Do you stop and pray and give thanks? Sometimes we feel like, well, it's just a habit. Well, if it's a habit, sort of correct the habit. Say, next time you pray, Lord, many times I pray the same word, and it may be a habit, but what I want to do right now is just thank you for the food that you gave me. I just appreciate it. And don't be ashamed of it in public. I'm not saying when you're in a restaurant, say, look, we're all having family prayer now if anybody wants to join. But in a, in a, in a devout, maybe inconspicuous way to others, not seeking to draw attention, stop and give thanks in all settings for what God has given to you. This closes the four-week message really on order in the church and sort of to summarize the why again today. Why? Is church order important to the Lord? Why is this a matter that we don't, we don't need to overlook, that we need to look into? The church is precious to God. Anything that's precious to God should be important to us. Secondly, the church has been given a sacred trust. We need to make sure that the leaders, that the church as a whole is sound doctrinally, is, is a bulwark for the truth standing against the forces that would do it because thirdly there are those who would seek to confuse the message let's pray father um, we thank you today for your word and we thank you for jesus 
He is the one who has come to pay the price for our sin, who alone fulfilled the law. Lord, the word tells us if we keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, we're guilty of all of it. And Lord, by that measure, we're all guilty. Lord, we want to live righteous lives. We want to obey you. But Lord, keep us mindful that in our own strength, Lord, we can't, that we're dependent on your grace every day. Lord, if there be any here today who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed around the world, believed on in many people, and who is glorified, I pray today you would give that individual the strength to step out right now and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sacred trust you've given us. Lord, protect your church here. Protect its leaders that, Lord, you would be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word today.